Students of the undead quickly realize that, like many of their compatriots in other disciplines, they cannot precisely define what it is they study. Nowhere is this more evident than in the case of Zombie Diego, also known as the San Diego Zombie, and the Miami Pseudolick. Formally, the undead are entities partaking of the natures of both the living and the dead. The traditional example is Nosferatu Nocturnus, the Central European Nocturnal Vampire. In the process of transformation, the body of the vampire perishes and cools. The heart ceases to beat. But electroencephalograms demonstrate that the neural activity continues throughout. CAT scans cannot distinguish the brain of a vampire from the brain of a living man. Clearly, this entity is dead. It does not breathe or maintain a constant body temperature. But as any member of the Van Helsing Society will tell you, N. Nocturnus is entirely too lively in its pursuit of prey and assault thereof. Ergo, these vampires are undead. At about this point, an undergraduate desiring ingratiation raises a hand and asks how much of the nature of the dead an entity must possess to be considered undead. After all, most of what we can see of each other is dead tissue. The outer layer of skin, the hair, the nails, all of this is necrobiotic. Are we, then, undead? The lecturer then responds that although he is certain he is not undead, he entertains his doubts about the questioner. But after the laughter subsides and the class is over, the instructor retires to his study and ponders. Where do we draw the line between living and undead? Is there a line? Then, when we meet with our students over pizza and beer, we argue back and forth. And the most cited example, by all participants arguing every conceivable point of view, is Zombie Diego. For the benefit of occultists everywhere, I here attempt to set forth an introduction to the study of this fascinating creature. Is it living or undead? Human or inhuman? Buffoonish plaything of the jaded, or parasite sinister as the cuckoo. We're talking with Stephen Zelensky. His first novel is Bad Magic. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Call me Stefan, and I won't strangle you. Okay, great. <laughs> Stefan, your novel takes place in San Francisco. The San Francisco we all know, the city streets, the filth, the homeless. Yet it's overlaid with a layer of completely unreal. Tell us a little bit about your setup, how your novel works, the world in your novel works. Well, as it turns out, I'm the only one with the actual perspective on San Francisco. And it's everybody else who's deluded and saying, oh, yeah, no, no supernatural stuff going on here. The premise is basically very simple. Most horror is based on a confusion between the mythological and the real. And... Let's face it, things like the vampire myth date back about, you know, four or five thousand years to the ancient Greeks and blood drinking ghosts. And the probability of there really being vampires walking around is basically zero. But I still wanted to tell a story about vampires walking around San Francisco. So all I had to do was come up with a way that the lousy things could be staggering around here, sucking the blood out of people, leaving corpses down on every street corner, and nobody noticed. That was a little tricky. And how did you bring this about? Fortunately, I was able to write science fiction rather than, oh, say, journalism. I made stuff up. And specifically, I made up the notion of a third eye, which, of course, is a term that dates back to all manner of both psychobabble and, you know, deep scientific literature about points of view of the metaphysical reality of non-Western peoples. What it boils down to is actually a variation on something that Douglas Adams once said which is, if you can't see them, they have a hard time giving a damn about you. 
the only way that I could really see vampires walking around and nobody noticing them is that humans somehow evolved not to notice vampires. Therefore, I needed a mechanism by which people who noticed vampires got eaten. That turned out to be relatively simple. After all, we do tend to ignore things that don't look like they're threats. Say you're walking down the street and there's a tiger there. If the tiger doesn't appear to notice that you're there, it doesn't bother you that it's got teeth and claws. You'll just walk around it. But the minute the tiger looks up and sees you, then you'll identify it as a threat. That's the basic setup for all of the horrible undead and supernatural things that are going on. For the most part, we have evolved the ability not to notice them. So they leave us alone. When that system breaks down, very bad things happen. You've set up a group of eight people. The usual horror novel involves suburbanites, a very quiet setting, a very careful buildup of the reality. We know it, the details, the homes. You've completely tossed that out the window and done something rather different, haven't you? I suppose, yes. Again, the premise there is simply one of suspension of disbelief. I always had a hard time suspending my dis- disbelief with the stories that were everything is sweetness and light, and then somebody happens to open the one book that lets the monsters or whatever jump out of the shadows and try to eat them. Always at the end of the movie or at the end of the book, I'm left with the question saying, so what happens to this guy? Does he go into psychotherapy for the rest of his life? The police who are, you know, walk up and see the aftermath with corpses nailed up all over the place and a giant void in the backyard that is currently sucking trees down into it. How do they possibly reconcile that with the rest of reality? It seemed to me to make a lot more sense that... If there are supernatural things going on, a typical suburbanite who stumbles across them is probably going to get eaten within about seven seconds. Therefore, if I wrote a book about the suburbanites in this situation as they discover this hidden world, it would be a very, very short book. The result, therefore, is the protagonists actually are capable of dealing with all of these strange and weird things going on. And they've pretty much given up going to the authorities on the basis that the authorities have absolutely no way of even perceiving the threat in the first place. That pretty much makes them the authorities, except for the minor fact that they're badly outnumbered and they're on the wrong side of a major philosophical divide in the whole occult community, one of which generally represented by the incumbents say, okay, we can perceive the supernatural, how can we make a buck off of this? The opposition, for the most part, has all these silly, old-fashioned ideas about, you know, gee, maybe we should be protecting innocent people, and as a result is greatly reduced in numbers and loses most of its battles. You've got a lot of interesting background in this novel. Tell us a little bit about, just for example, what is exactly is thaumaturgy? Uh, That goes back to what is generally characterized as the European rules of magic. A bunch of anthropologists sat down and said, okay, here we have all of these magical traditions in European folklore. Is there any underlying logic to them? And it turns out that there are a number of them, which are summarized under a variety of different names. In this case, I picked Thaumaturgy, which really was kind of arbitrary. I could have called it almost anything. But one of the classic European rules of magic is like produces like. If you want to melt a large block of ice, one way to do it is to take a small block of ice Melt that while chanting magic words. Another is the principle of sympathy and contagion. If you want to melt that large block of ice, chip off a piece of that large block of ice. Melt it while chanting magic words, and all sorts of things happen. And it turns out that these rules are remarkably consistent throughout European folklore. 
it goes back to a large number of superstitions. For instance, the way that you ease childbirth, and if a woman is having trouble actually bearing the child, is you run through the house and you untie all the knots on all the shoelaces and you unlock all the doors. And that's a real live, honest to goodness superstition out there, which if you analyze it according to these rules, they say, okay, that's traditional European magic. Ryder, in this case, is a European magician. And most of the stuff that he does is based on the European rules of magic. It turns out that he he's a little better than that and goes into what probably is your follow-up question, which is, what the devil is synesthetic magic, which is something that I made up. And that's based on the idea of it's the same basic European rules of magic, except with a conflation of the senses, which usually occurs in reality in people who are either psychotic or hallucinating. Although you do see it in other people who are suffering, uh, for instance, migraine headaches. That's often accompanied by experiences, which you know people suffering the headache will recount as when the headache is coming on, I can see a siren as it goes by. If a fire engine goes by with its siren blaring, I can see that. There's or a medical condition. That and there's a medical condition. As well. Um, which is where, in fact, the term itself comes from. That would also explain the rather hallucinatory nature of the narrative itself. Yeah. Um, although, frankly, the real explanation for, okay, why is the narrative so hallucinatory as well? I was drinking a lot at the time. <laughs> but we'll ignore that part uh, within the internal logic of the book. Well, of course, yeah, it's a, a very deep hallucinatory nature thing. Yeah, synesthetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> One thing I think you do remarkably well in this book is that you use hard-boiled mystery and prose techniques as a counterbalance to all the weirdness that's going on. It's almost like a, an Andrew Vox version of the supernatural. Could you tell me, a little bit, <laughs> tell me a little bit about how you worked that in the prose and how you came up with that approach? Well, you nailed it right on the head when you pointed at Vax, who, as far as I'm concerned, is the the logical heir of, for instance, uh, Dashiell Hamlet and uh, Raymond Chandler, who also wrote about really horrible things going on. I mean, if you read old Chandler, then the crimes that his protagonists aren't covering are really pretty nasty stuff. When you get to Andrew Vax himself, the crimes that are taking place in his books are extraordinarily nasty. What seems to me to be the common thread running through this is they emphasize the human reaction to all of these horrible things that their protagonists encounter. It's one thing to have the really macho private detective see, you know, some horrible thing. You know, again, somebody is nailed up to the wall by their eyeballs or something like that and grunt a lot and make a smart aleck remark. Hammett, Chandler, and Vax, though, do a very good job of letting the protagonist really react to what's going on. Now, they're tough guys. And if they weren't tough before they got into the business, they sure as heck are tough now. But they're still human and they're still reacting. As a result of that, a lot of the techniques that, you know, Chandler, Vax, and on like that use, I found useful myself. Things as simple from a mechanistic point of view as don't be afraid to use sentence fragments. 
because everybody who's been in a stressful situation knows that all of a sudden the ability to construct a complicated sentence goes right out the window. You don't have a dependent clause in a lot of statements along the lines of, you know, oh my goodness, I do feel that at this point in time, I believe perhaps we are being subjected to an influence by the occult depredations of a nocturnal assassin. Now, mostly, if you see something like that, what you're going to do is, you know, ah, monster! One of the things you also do quite well in this novel is integrate nerd humor. There's a certain feel here where you go almost, it's the novel exists almost in a quantum state between the nerd approach and the ultra-hard-boiled approach. You seem to find the sympathetic center that illuminates both those approaches. Tell us a little bit about where this nerd aspect comes from. Uh, the whole notion of nerd humor, as far as I'm concerned, is predicated on humor that you have to know a lot of complicated things about a specific subject area to begin to understand. And here I differentiate it from something like Monty Python, you know, which is humor that is appreciated by nerds, but is not necessarily nerd humor per se. If you know a tremendous amount of anthropology, you can construct anthropologist nerd humor, which will have your fellow anthropologists falling on the floor laughing their fool heads off. And that to me is a very human response to people who are, they have a great deal of responsibility in what they're doing in their day-to-day -day lives. It took a tremendous amount of training in order for them to be able to carry out these responsibilities. They're under tremendous amount of stress. And when they crack jokes, the resulting jokes are funny only to other members of the in-group and in one sense really aren't all that funny. Most nerd humor simply doesn't translate at all. I have a piece sitting on the website, for instance, which is about system administrators. And there aren't more than you know, say 100,000 people on the face of the earth who could look at that and even recognize that it's trying to be humor. Let's go through the characters in this book, the, the eight members of the cell. Tell us a little bit about Al Ryder. Where does he come from? He's the European synesthetic magician, right? Somewhat the leader of the, of yeah, the gang. In one sense. Uh, leader is a bit of a tricky question for the whole book because, frankly, trying to get any of these people to do anything you tell them to do is like herding cats. But, you know, in as much as you could say somebody's in charge, he's, he's not in the back. Uh, there are definitely people in the group who are less leadership-oriented, we'll put it that way. As far as where he's from, I, I tried actually quite hard to make sure that it's almost impossible to tell where any of these people were was born, when they were born, what their experiences were like before they ran into all these incredibly strange things. For the most part, because the other members of the cell really either don't know or don't care. It turns out that Ryder must have been some sort of academician. He's, uh, he actually has a doctorate in quantitative theological epidemiology, which is another field of study that I made up, but, you know, the details are in the book, and somehow went from being a member of the incumbents to being a member of the opposition. It's obvious that he's, a, he's done some pretty rotten things in the past and is not doing them right now. And frankly, most people don't really trust him as a result of this. Your average first novel does not necessarily take off with eight lead characters. Mm -hmm. What made you decide to, to people this novel with eight main characters? That was just a question of the, the structure of the book demanded it. The, the real question in my mind was one main character, two main characters, or N main characters. One main character, well, uh, that uh, 
I have absolutely no problem with books that have one main character and then a bunch of other guys who are around basically for moral support or somebody to bounce ideas off of. But that is, I consider, to be a good setup for a very character-oriented book. And in a lot of ways, this is not a character-oriented book. This is a uh, plot-oriented slash setting-oriented book. And since I didn't have a main character who was so incredibly important to me, it didn't make much sense for me to have a book with a single main character. For those of you who are contemplating writing your first books, one of the classic problems with first novels is people do sit down with their first main character. Their first main character is recognizably themselves. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It just turns out to be incredibly difficult to pull off. Uh, word to the wise. So that leads to the next possibility. Two main characters. Okay, that's a book about a relationship. Uh, again, I didn't have a story in mind that was about a relationship. A lot of the variations on that three main characters, well, that's a relationship plus a third party. By the time you get beyond three, you're looking at N main characters. And at that point, I sat down and said, okay, if I were trying to put together a bunch of people to try to deal with this incredibly horrible situation that I've got set up, who would I have? And I wrote down a bunch of, you know, it was like filling out, uh, I'm, I'm from a Silicon Valley culture, it was like filling out headcount for a team to go forth and work on a project. You needed somebody who could do this, somebody who could do that, and somebody who could do that. And so the number turned out to be eight. And the fact that eight is a power of two has absolutely nothing to do with nothing. No honest, really. One of the things that makes this book so believable is the fact that the characters don't really know what they're doing. They themselves doubt themselves. They make mistakes. Tell us a little bit about that approach to supernatural and horror fiction. Uh, I don't even consider that to be necessarily all that unique to, or it shouldn't be unique, to supernatural and horror fiction in general. I think that that's an honest depiction of what actually happens in the real world in almost every field of endeavor. If you look at something as simple as, again, I... I'm a computer guy. I worked in the Silicon Valley for many years. The best way that I could describe the most effective groups that I saw that were doing things was, at best, you could say they didn't know what they were doing, but they had a pretty good idea how to find out. The people who actually know what they're doing are out, and they're doing it, and there's not really a lot of story behind that. For instance, we pretty much know how to change the oil in automobiles. It's very difficult to come up with an interesting story about changing oil in automobiles because everybody knows you get on your back, you open up the lug nut, the oil pours out, you put the lug nut in, you put the oil back in. That's great, but it doesn't make for much of a story about automobiles. The people who are really doing what I consider interesting things with automobiles are the people who are sitting around saying, okay, it sure would be nice if we had a car that could run on hydrogen. How do we do this without having an exploding death trap hurtling down the highway at 75 miles an hour? Strictly speaking, the people who are trying to develop things like hydrogen fuel automobiles or, you know, hydrogen powered hummers really don't know what they're doing because they've never done it before. When you get down to the supernatural, it's even worse because, let's face it, if these things were easily predictable, they would be science. For instance, there is a well-documented procedure for how to, for instance, do something which would have been considered absolutely magical and impossible in the Middle Ages. You, know, you can sit down and buy a textbook that tells you how to build an airplane and get on the airplane and fly all around. Almost by definition, 
anything that is amenable to that level of analysis, firm scientific description, is going to be part of science. Therefore, the supernatural, almost by definition, cannot be predicted. And any explanation for it, you know, how do ghosts really work, has to be wrong, <laughs> for the time being at least. The day that we actually do come up with an explanation for what ghosts really are, in a firm, predictable, 100%, okay, this is, this is the rules, at that point it's science. It's no longer the supernatural. That also, and it, again, you know, good eye on you, that also shows up in the book, where people are arguing about what the heck this third eye business is in the first place. Max Sturgeon, in particular, another one of the uh, members of the cell, really can't bring himself to go with the hypothesis that the academics in the group are using. As far as he's concerned, he has a more traditional science fiction point of view saying, well, these are things from an alternate universe that are leaking over somehow. And the academics in the group don't even bother to argue with him on it on the grounds that if they really could definitively say he was wrong, they would. But the supernatural is not amenable to rational analysis to that degree yet. Maybe it will be someday, but at that point it'll cease being the supernatural. One of the techniques you use, take a page from Lovecraft and Borges, is metafictional techniques. You've got all sorts of references, manuals, how-tos. Tell us a little bit about how you developed the background did you develop it separately from the novel, or did you just splash the dialogue down on the page and then go back and, oh, my God, I've got to figure out what this all means? Believe it or not, a lot of the background evolved out of a football pool I was in when I was 23. How could that possibly have anything to do with I was sitting around watching a football game with my buddies, you know, and we had a football pool going. And I know absolutely nothing about football. I didn't know anything about football then. I don't know anything about football now. The guys wanted to have a football pool. And I said, well, I have no interest in getting into this because I know nothing about football, so I'm going to lose. And one of the guys said, well, you know, what we're going to do, though, is we're going to pick against the spread. And for those of you who are not familiar with gambling on football, what that boils down to is there are a bunch of guys in Las Vegas who say, you know, I figure there's about a 50-50 chance that such and such a team is going to win by eight points. So if you're willing to give me 20 bucks, I'll give you two to one odds that uh, they will win by eight points or more. That's called picking against the spread. If the guys in Las Vegas have done their job correctly, once you have the spread in front of you, there's really 50-50 chance of where it's going to go. In one sense, you don't have to know anything about football in order to gamble on that, which is why the guys in Las Vegas, A, have to be very good, and B, since they are very good, gambling on football is a great way to lose a great deal of money very quickly. But for the purposes of the football pool, we figure we'll pick against the spread. And I said, okay, well, if I don't know anything about football, I can use this deck of tarot cards I have here to make my picks about this football game. So as a result, I started sending out these notes saying, well, the tarot cards say that this is how this football game is going to go. Well, you may have noticed if you've looked at a tarot deck, there isn't the three quarterbacks in there. There are a lot of really dark medieval images in there, though. And I said, OK, how do you apply a dark medieval image to this modern game of football? And it probably would have stayed there, except I won that football pool for three years running. So a great deal of the background came out of my writing about football from a medieval point of view. The whole idea of San Diego being inhabited by zombies came out of one day I was sitting around with my buddies watching a football game. And there was a San Diego player standing on the sidelines and a coach walked up to him, jammed a water bottle in his mouth, squeezed it, the football player swallowed the water and the coach took the thing out and walked away. The expression on the guy's face never changed. He didn't blink. 
And I said, holy Toledo, they've got zombies on the team. They've got zombies on the San Diego football team. And it all went from there. Tell us a little bit about the San Diego zombies, Zombie Diego. You have a, a great treatise. And it's interesting that earlier on, you said that the supernatural wasn't amenable to scientific analysis. Yet at the end of the book, you have a scientific paper on the supernatural phenomena of the zombie Diego. That's true. But that paper, like in one sense, a lot of real science papers, raises more questions than it answers. Yes, there's a 20-page deep scientific paper that ends up with saying, and we don't know how these things die. Uh, You'd think that, you know, if if they had really managed to nail down the life cycle of the San Diego zombie, they would have some idea of what happens to these things when they get old. They don't, even within the context of a bunch of very skilled academics, you know, within the context of the book, studying the life cycle of the San Diego. They absolutely positively don't know something that simple. All that that paper is doing is summarizing everything that they know so far. Tell us also, what do you have against the leathery tanned people of San Diego? Well, you know, there was, I happened to take a trip down to San Diego. And on that trip, that was a case where I was in a bad mood anyway, for that particular trip as a result of various reasons. And I looked around and it really did seem to me like the basic, some of the people, not everybody, of course, not everybody, but there was a certain almost cast of people down there whose life cycle and mentation was set when they were about six years old and their minds didn't change from then until they kind of disappeared at around the age of 40. So that whole scientific paper there about zombie Diego, as far as I was concerned, I was down in San Diego and I was looking around and I was seeing these people. It was a field study then. It was a field study. <laughs> One of the things I really like is the, the metafictional aspect of that of that piece of uh, prose and, of, of the again, the background to your entire novel. Tell us a little bit about, do you have any favorite metafictional influences yourself? For example, I'm thinking of like George Luis Borges' Universal History of Infamy. Stanislaw Lem has done a number of reviews of non-existent books. The, the metafictional stuff in general, In you brought up nerd humor earlier. I actually have, I tend to be deeply suspicious of anything with the word meta in the title, simply because I know I have, a, I have a weak spot in my heart for it. Strictly speaking, you know, my background is academic computer science. And that means that I sat down and I read everything that Douglas Hofstadter ever wrote and thought it was the greatest stuff that ever there was, and it still didn't get me chicks. But... And I've, you know, read Lamb and Borges and all these people. And I said, wow, you know, this is really great self-referential stuff. And it always left me gasping for laughter. And then I'd hand it to somebody else and they'd say, yeah, that's really clever. So in one sense, I may have inadvertently gone into the whole metafictional end of things, even though that was something I was trying to avoid. One thing, too, you do well is use Northern California locations. This is a very gritty and dense book. Uh, Tell us a little bit about why you chose Northern California. Is it, was it just because you lived here? Is it just that, your... And that turned out to be relatives. Yeah, I happen to live in Northern California, and I live two blocks from San Francisco General, which is where the opening scenes of the book take place. A lot of the gritty aspect of things comes down to if you actually go out on the street and look around, you're not going to see zombies walking around. At least I haven't yet so far. But I see a lot of people walking around who are acting like zombies. I don't see vultures sitting on the, you know, hanging onto the trees waiting for somebody to die. 
But I see a lot of people who are obviously there on the street dying. And that's just a question of going out on the street and looking. It helps if you're in a bad mood when you do this. But anybody in any large city will have experiences like this. They can talk about getting off of the subway at the wrong station and looking around and finding themselves in, it's not a war zone. There aren't corpses piled up on the street corner, but you can tell that bad things are going on. Northern California, as a result of that, just happens to be, well, that's where I am, and I know where I know where all the buildings are in Northern California. You were working in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. What brought you from being a guy filling out headcounts to being a guy writing about vulture clan takeovers of the United States. That actually goes back to college. Everybody has some things that they're good at. And it turns out that I was good at two things, computers and writing. And it was a real question of which direction I was going to go. But being basically, I would say, very practical. When I was 20, in my 20s, I looked and I said, okay, I can make a lot more money in computers than I can writing stories about zombies. So I went to work, working in Silicon Valley, you know, doing system administration, doing all this incredibly technical stuff. And then I would go home and write. Most of my energy went towards making a living. But writing is something that I've always done. Now, as it turns out, recently, the whole dot-com thing blew up And that happened a couple years after I got so sick of computers, I never want to see another one of them again. As a result, technically speaking, I'm now, quote unquote, a full-time writer. But another way to look at that is, well, I don't have a real job. Tell us, this reads a little bit like the first in a series, is it? I don't plan for it to be right now. And there there are two reasons for that. One is very abstract and one is very prosaic. The very abstract reason is... I think that a lot of authors get trapped by the success of their first book. The example that I always cite is Gardner. Uh, I'm I'm sure you're familiar with for, I don't know if everybody out there is. He's the fellow who wrote an excellent book, by the way, and one that you should definitely go out and look for called Expendable. It's science fiction. It's got a setup. It's got a very intricate science fictional world setup. Fantastic book. Absolutely fantastic. Came out with a sequel. Another pretty good book. Definitely a sequel, but a very good book. And then he wrote a book where he tries to get away from the whole science fiction end of things and go into more of a fantasy end of things. But he did this by warping the metaphysics of the situation so that, as it turns out, it was part of the same story cycle. Now, the first two books were straight science fiction, you know, faster than light ships going all over the place, aliens, ray guns, you know, all the stuff that you expect in conventional science fiction. This book was really a quest novel in the tradition of Don Quixote, Nevertheless, that got wedged into this paradigm of science fiction. And I think it was done primarily because he said, well, this is where I've got my reputation, is in this particular fictional setting. And if I'm going to tell a story, it's going to be in this particular fictional setting. And I don't think that that was the wisest decision to make. I think the book would have turned out better if he just said, okay, if I'm going to have a nun walking around talking to God, I'll just let the story be about a nun walking around talking to God without having a reveal on page 75 that, oh, and it turns out that this is a result of the nanotechnology that I've been describing in two of my previous books. You know, if it's if it's a nun talking to God, let the nun talk to God. So that's the very abstract reason why I don't really plan on making this the first book of a series. The second reason, and the far more prosaic one, is in the interim, I stopped drinking. I don't experience nearly as many near hallucinations as I used to. When I'm out on the streets, I still see all the things that I see, but the imagery that accompanies it is not nearly as horrifying. Well, what do you have planned for next? It's... 
I, I still wants to do something along the lines of horror, but a more humanistic horror, which you know, almost sounds like a contradiction in terms. But really, a uh, vampire is nothing but a metaphor for a nasty being that walks around sucking the life out of people. You don't have to actually have the thing sprout fangs, walk up to somebody and suck their blood out to tell a perfectly adequate vampire story. I think a great deal of the impact that good horror has is it's not about werewolves or vampires per se, although, you know, werewolves and vampires can definitely be involved. The, well, the werewolf myth is the straight-up conflict between civilized humanity and uncivilized humanity, and whether a person can be part of both at the same time and what happens if he loses control of the two of them. Ghosts are stories about loss and regret. You don't actually have to have a woman drift through the walls shaking chains in order to tell a perfectly adequate ghost story. This is interesting. So you see yourself primarily as a horror writer. Is I'll, I'll tell an true? interesting story. There's, I claim that a lot of stories fail to be interesting because they don't take into account the conflicts that are running around in people's lives. And that sounds like you know, that sounds like a, the dumbest thing that anybody could ever possibly say. Because wait a minute, it's it says in every writing manual that you see that stories are about conflict. Yeah, they are. But you sit down and you analyze certain books by certain authors that I'm not going to name, and it turns out that the conflict is between okay, is this person underappreciated a lot or a little? The entire Mary Sue genre of pseudo literature basically boils down to tales about a conflict between. Somebody's appreciated a lot or somebody's appreciated a little. Explain Mary Sue. This oh, is a great concept. Sorry. This is an idea that came out of uh, analysis of fan fiction. There's absolutely nothing wrong with fan fiction either. However, what tends to happen with authors who are just beginning to write stories set in a fictional universe that they're familiar with and they want to write a story about the classical example is Star Trek. There is a particular storytelling defect that occurs a lot. And the storytelling defect is when they sit down to write a story about this fictional universe, they do it by inventing a character that is recognizably a version of themselves, except they're perfect, and they run around, and the job of every other pre-established fictional character is to appreciate them. I don't remember the name of the author who first wrote the story that had the character Mary Sue in it, but it exists, it's out there, you can find it on the web, and the entire structure of the story is Mary Sue shows up and she runs into, you know, Kirk, Spock, Picard, every every character in the science fiction universe, and they all look at her and they say, my goodness, how pretty you are. So that's the digression on Mary Sue. The question of conflict in a story, though, in one sense, horror, in my opinion, is a story about conflict where a great deal of the conflict itself has not been anthropomorphized. There, there should be a word that means anthropomorphized except rooted from monster instead of human. I'm sure I could try to put one together if I had a sheet of paper, but I'm not going to try to do it with just my voice. The conflict has been personified in a monster, you know, a vampire, a ghost, a werewolf, you know, a dog with rabies, to quote a classic example, Stephen King's Cujo. And that monster serves as a metaphor or stand-in for the conflict that is going on throughout the book. If you sit down and you read Cujo, Cujo is a perfectly adequate story without the rabid dog. It turns out that if you add in the rabid dog, that makes the story better. That, as far as I'm concerned, is fantastic horror, and that is what I'm trying to write. We've been speaking with Stephen Stefan Zielinski. You saw me flexing my fingers. <laughs> That's right. His new novel is Bad Magic. Thanks for talking with us, Stefan.